The Gist is brought to you by Betterment, the largest automated investing service managing billions of dollars for people just like you. Get up to six months of investing free when you go to Betterment.com slash Gist. Betterment, investing made better. And by Harry's, the shaving company that offers German-engineered blades, well-designed handles, and shipping right to your door. Visit harrys.com for $5 off your first purchase with the promo code GIST. The following podcast contains explicit language. Monday, February 8th, 2016 from Slate. It's the GIST. I'm Mike Pasca. Maybe you are new to the show. Maybe you're a longtime listener. But, you know, I think it's time we had the talk. You know the talk I'm talking about. The talk where we talk about... You may have opioid-induced constipation. OIC. Opioid-induced constipation. Oh, I see. I felt funny saying that. Those words right here on The Gist, an opt-in podcast experienced by, let's say, fewer than 50 million people. Oh, and there's not a huge chance that you're listening to The Gist at a party where people are ravenously consuming bean dip and pita tips. Oh, I see, said one thousandth of the Super Bowl viewing audience who actually could use that ad. And why did you make me see, said the other 999 out of 1,000. But you know who I feel really sorry for during the Super Bowl, aside from constipated methadone users? It's a thing. Don't laugh. I feel sorry for the doctors. Oh, the calls they must be fielding. Have the conversation with your doctor about OIC. Or this one for a diarrhea cure. Tell your doctor right away if your diarrhea worsens while taking Zyfaxin. Oh, uh, my situation just worsened while taking Zyfaxin. Oh, uh, Mr. Pesca, this can wait until Monday, can it? They told me to call right away. Right away, doctor! Tell your doctor if you have liver disease or are taking other medications. By the way, I don't have liver disease. No, I know you don't. Listen, I'm watching the Super Bowl with my family. Book an appointment for during the week. Tell your doctor if you are pregnant, plan on becoming pregnant, or are nursing. Oh, by the way, I'm not planning on being pregnant because, you know, I'm a man. Listen, Mr. Pesca, I'm hanging up. Just because a commercial tells you to call me doesn't mean you have to call me. Show some control. Also, next time you're at the gym and you consider using a shoulder press machine, don't call me either. But the sign said consult your physician before operating the Cybex shoulder row. I don't care what it said. Good God, man, show some judgment. Show some restraint. If you think you have IBS with diarrhea, talk to your doctor about new Zyfaxin. But doctor, we need to talk about Zyfaxin. Doctor, please. Mr. Pesca, I have hundreds of patients. They're all watching the Super Bowl. Can't you be more like the opioid-induced constipation crowd? At least have some barriers. You diarrhea people, you can't control yourselves, can you? Doctor, is it possible you're in the wrong line of work? Yes. Yes, it is. I always wanted to be an ad salesman. Go to med school, mother said. No one will buy your ideas, she said. No one understands what a beverage has to do with something that you call a puppy monkey baby. Damn you, mother. And damn you, Zyfaxin. And with that, the doctor dropped off the grid, never to be heard from again, until Kevin Hart tracked him down with the Hyundai Constant Vigilance Daughter Virginity feature, free with your purchase of a Hyundai Genesis. Ask your doctor's permission if the Daughter Virginity feature 
is right for you. On the show today, I spiel about the gaff, 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 gaff that Marco Rubio committed, 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 committed. But first, the FX Network's American Crime Story series has rekindled interest in one of the few stories that really did live up to its billing as crime or story of the century. Episode two debuts tomorrow. The title of that episode is The Run of His Life, and that happens to be the subtitle of Jeffrey Tubin's excellent account upon which the entire series was based. So Jeffrey Tubin's coming up in a minute. American Crime Story, The People versus O.J. Simpson is excellent. So far, it's hitting multiple pleasure centers of my brain. It's both historic and nostalgic. It's raising real issues. It's delivering on entertainment. It's towing the line between farce and tragedy. The performances are great. I've got to credit writers. The writers of the show have said in interviews that they've based the tone on movies like Network and Dog Day Afternoon. That's really coming through. But of course, there is the source material. It's all based on a foundation of excellent reporting. And that reporting was provided by Jeffrey Tube, and he wrote The Run of His Life, The People versus O.J. Simpson. That's the book the series is based on. And Jeffrey Tubin is here with me now. He's a staff writer for The New Yorker, senior legal analyst for CNN. Thanks for coming on, Jeffrey. Hi, Mike. First of all, I thought that I had remembered the O.J. trial and put it on a shelf, but now as I'm unpacking it, you know, I look back and I think to myself, all right, this is what I thought it was about. It was about a lot of things, but mostly about jury nullification and a jury getting it wrong. And I understood the racial context to understood what I told myself was the important thing. This is how a jury can get it so wrong. But as I look back, maybe that sideline to understand the racial context, to understand the important thing, maybe I was flip-flopping them. And my question is to you, as you look back and reconsider it, do you weigh the different factors about what the important things about the OJ trial were? Do you weigh them any differently now than you did then? I wouldn't say I weigh them differently. I, I guess one, one of the things about you know time passing is that you develop maybe sort of a tragic view of the events you were involved in. And sort of the inevitability of it all seems seems more obvious. Even at the time, I mean, what interested me most about the trial was the racial context, in part because that was, you know, an article I wrote for The New Yorker brought it out. But, you know, I got very interested in the history of Los Angeles, the history of the Los Angeles Police Department. Johnny Cochran was a, you know, a, a seminal figure in the history of African-American life in, in Los Angeles. So just his involvement, the way he tried the case, I mean, it was always obvious to me that race was the key theme uh, of, the, uh, of the whole trial. And, and I think that's one of those things that, that American Crime Story has really picked up on that that is in addition to all the other sideshows, in addition to Cato Kalin and uh, um, Faye Resnick and all the craziness, this is really a story about race in America. Should Johnny Cochran be remembered as mercenary, as a civil rights hero, as obviously a talented lawyer, but a guy who cynically took advantage of a situation, or more of a guy who properly compartmentalized his life and gave justice when he could, but also, you know, gave himself remuneration when he could? That's a great question, and I think that's one of the areas where I have really softened over over time. You know, Emily Nussbaum, my colleague at The New Yorker, reviewed American Crime Story, and she also went back and read my book, and she pointed out 
you know, what a harsh portrayal it was of Johnny Cochran. And I think it's not just because Johnny has sadly died uh, in the interim, but I, I, I think I recognize that, that, you know, Johnny was someone who did good and did well. Uh, I think he, um, he really did uh, work in Los Angeles for a, a better city. I think he recognized the problems in the LAPD more than others did. I've re- I've really softened in Johnny and uh, on Johnny and you know presented with a cop with the history of Mark Furman as bad as it was which which even got became worse over the course of the trial with the disclosure of his use of uh, the the N word I, I I don't really blame Johnny for for how he tried this case. You know, some lessons we could have taken from O.J., the O.J. trial, the O.J. verdict, could have been something like, wow, racism is so pervasive in the LAPD or the L.A. culture or possibly in many police departments. We really should look at that as a society, else we get these uh, warped verdicts. But I think the lesson we did take was, really, is it that racism is so pervasive or is it that it can be twisted around to let a guilty man go free? Well, you know, th- th- that's one of the great paradoxes of the case. Also, again, you can't make this stuff up. Out of all the African Americans in in Los Angeles to turn out to be the beneficiary of the very bad history between the LAPD and African Americans is perhaps the one African American who did the most to escape that legacy and was only the beneficiary uh, uh, you know, an, an entirely undeserving beneficiary. You know, O.J. Simpson, you know, ne- never had any civil rights activity, always was uh, surrounded by uh, cops in a very friendly way. I think one explanation of how the case unfolded the way it did is was their undue courtesy to him, not that they were framing him. But, you know, I, I just think that's the, the perverse and strange way that life unfolds. Do you think Marsha Clark's a good prosecutor or was? Uh, you know, look, I, I think she had been a good prosecutor before this case. This case was so different, was so crazy, was so anomalous. Uh, you know, it, it's tough to make a judgment about someone based on this case. I think she did some things well. I think uh, she made some serious mistakes in jury selection. I think her partner, Chris Darden, made a big mistake in asking O.J. Simpson to try on those gloves. But I think, again, in, in, in keeping with my sort of tragic view of the case now, The case was probably over in jury selection, and there's not much they could have done. I understand. We understand why the jury decided what it did, but can we still say the jury decided improperly? Yeah, I do. I I think the jury was wrong. I I think the idea that you should punish the LAPD for uh, these imagined sins and let a murderer get away with it is not how the criminal justice system is supposed to work. In some countries, they allow a retrial after an improper not guilty verdict. In the United States, we have double jeopardy laws. And I'm not even talking about backwater countries with kangaroo courts. You know, I think it's actually under the Napoleonic Code they allow such a thing. Is that something that has any appeal to you? None, frankly. Um our, our double jeopardy laws are, are, are appropriate, and if they mean that sometimes guilty people get off, that's a price I'm willing to pay for forbidding the government from repeatedly prosecuting people they don't like. I think that's it. That's an important protection of civil liberties. We, we did have 
in this case, a civil trial where uh, O.J. was was found liable and ordered to pay a great deal of money and damages, which, of course, he hasn't done. I, I think that's a rare but appropriate middle ground that can sometimes be used. Uh, I, I'm, I'm happy with the double jeopardy bond. You're a great person to ask this next question to because you write for The New Yorker, but you also cover stories on CNN. So I want to ask about the media's coverage of murder trials. You know, there are some there are some outlets that just gorge on it. I worked for NPR for years. We had, I thought, almost a snooty distance to murder trials. They are compelling. Mm-hmm. They are human. So I want to know what your thoughts are. What are your standards for, yes, this is a trial that we should talk about, you know, obviously, there are some stations, in fact, some cable stations that start with the letter CNN that probably do too much murder trials just because, you know, they're for ratings. So do you draw lines? How do you think about that? That's a hard question. And, uh, you know, I do recognize there are some cases that are really purely salacious and have no great larger significance beyond the people involved. I Jody Arias in, in, in Arizona, maybe Scott Peterson in California, and I've spent some time covering those. And, and, and look, I'm, I'm no prude when it comes to these things. You know, murder is one of the most venerable forms of journalism and drama that, that we have. You know, the, the thing about O.J. was that it combined what my former editor, Tina Brown, liked to call high and low. Yeah. You know, it was, um, you know, a, a salacious celebrity murder, but it was also about race and domestic violence and, and the history of California. And that's why I think I, I was so drawn to it, uh, because it had all of the elements that made for superlative public entertainment. I hope that's not an inappropriate word. Well, that and public issues and not just the fig leaf of it or, oh, we can argue it. You know, I read a book by Bill James, the brilliant baseball mind, Bill James. I mean, I don't know if you know, he's also obsessed with crime. And he wrote a book called Popular Crime, Reflections on the Celebration of Violence. And, you know, he talked about a lot of cases, but he had a through line which really compellingly argued that the history of high profile murders is very much the history of justice reform. And we could beat ourselves up by drawing some entertainment from the Adnan Saeed case or the or the uh, case that was the making of a murderer case. But I do think that that if we're going to talk about instances of criminal justice, covering murders is a decent enough and sometimes a really important way to get to very important discussions. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I, I that's what I try to do. I try to tease out the important issues from, from what I cover. I'm sometimes a little worried about drawing too many lessons from these celebrated cases. I mean, you look at um, people would make conclusions about the criminal justice system based on the O.J. Simpson case. I mean, you know, you know, you had this enormous number of defense attorneys. You had cameras in the courtroom. You had, I forgot, five-month trial. I mean, that is not how most criminal matters are resolved in the United States, and no one should get a misimpression from it. However, it is still... And look, you know, I mean, we, we journalism, in addition to being a wonderfully high calling, is also a business, and uh, murder trials are good business. Do you keep up with the Kardashians? The only one I knew uh, was Robert, who is portrayed brilliantly in the series by David Schwimmer. Juice. Juice. situation has gotten real bad. Juice. What, one of my journalistic failings is that I fail to anticipate 
that the Kardashian name would be the most famous one to come out of the trial. And I never said to Robert during the trial, hey, do you have any kids? Yeah. Can I meet your daughters? In the series, they posit that this was formative in teaching the Kardashians lessons about fame. I don't care if that was really the case or not. It's fun to think about. But do you have ev- any evidence that it might have been true? Uh, some of the some of the actors researched their parts with their real-life counterparts. Some made a conscious decision not to. Obviously, David couldn't talk to Robert Kardashian, but he did spend a good deal of time talking to Kris Jenner, who was the ex-wife by that point. You know, Robert Kardashian was a very serious, somber, religious, private man. And I think the, the paradox of how his daughters turned out how they did is one of the more amusing and peculiar aspects of, of this case. And uh, I have to say that Ryan Murphy and the other producers, uh, you know, have a little fun with it as the series uh, unfolds. Yeah, because there probably would be reality TV without the O.J. Simpson trial, but you can't tell the story of reality TV without the O.J. Simpson trial. Uh, That's uh, well put. Jeffrey Tubin, staff writer for The New Yorker, senior legal analyst on CNN and author of The Run of His Life, The People v. O.J. Simpson. Thank you very much, Jeffrey. Thanks, Mike. So for all the talk about talking to your doctor about this or that, the other thing you always hear in ads, especially ads during sporting events, is talk to your financial planner. Well, do you even have a financial planner, and how much is that guy taking? I have a better solution, and that better solution is Betterment. What Betterment is, is it's a website that can orient you and let you get control of your financial future. It's an automated investing service. So a lot of the professional financial firms, they will tout that their services managing your money costs like 1% of your portfolio a month. You know, that adds up a lot. It is a fraction, I mean a small fraction of that cost to invest with Betterment. So with lower fees and with easy-to-use interfaces, Betterment at Betterment.com is really something that, if you've at all been thinking about your financial future, it's really something that you can check out. Go to Betterment.com slash gist to get, ready for this, six months of automated investing free. I mean, just a thing to check out you in any way have been saying to yourself, I really should get my financial life in order. I really should think about retirement. I really should start thinking about putting money away. Then go to betterment.com slash gist. As I said, six months of automating investing free and more information at betterment.com slash gist. Betterment investing made better. And now the spiel, twice, thrice, four times a freshman senator from Florida. I need to dispel once and for all, I need to dispel this notion, this inkling, this thesis, if you will, this 
And let's dispel once and for all with this fiction that Barack Obama doesn't know what he's doing. He knows exactly what he's doing. Yes, yes, this fiction. Go ahead, Marco. But I would add this. Let's dispel with this fiction that Barack Obama doesn't know what he's doing. He knows exactly what he's doing. Right, just like you said just before, dispel with that fiction, which means either to turn it into nonfiction or just to throw it away, to pulp it. This idea that, you know what, bottom line it for me, Marco. Here's the bottom line. This notion that Barack Obama doesn't know what he's doing is just not there true. There it is. He knows exactly what he's doing. There it is, the memorized 25-second speech. Well, that's the, that's there the it reason is, everybody. why this campaign is so important. You, you you be quiet there, Chris Christie. Brother Rubio was saying something about this, this supposition that the commander in chief is hapless, that he doesn't know what he's doing. Anyone who believes that Barack Obama isn't doing what he's doing on purpose doesn't understand what we're dealing with here. Okay, this is a president. This is a president who is trying to change this country. That's right. A president who is trying to change the country. How dare he? What about that position gives him the right to change the country? And specifically, Barack Obama, of all presidents, a man who in no way campaigned on the promise of changing the country, to try to change the country, to hope to change the country. I can see why Rubio is saying this so often. It is a strong charge. A strong charge that I don't really understand. You see, when a speaker repeats a line four times, then I, as the listener, can go through all the stages of denial, dispel with those stages of denial, and then the chord is struck. And maybe I believe Marco Rubio. I look at what this president has tried to do. Yes, we have 4.9% unemployment. Yes, gas costs only $1.80. Yes, for the first time in 50 years, 90% of Americans have health insurance. Yes, the U.S. death toll in Afghanistan last year was a 20th of the count during the worst year. The U.S. death toll in Iraq was less than a hundredth of each of the last four years of the Bush administration. And what's worse is that, and this is, this is Rubio's thesis, what's worse is that all those accomplishments happened on purpose, by design. As Marco Rubio tells you, the president knows exactly what he's doing. So you could see why the other Republicans and the media just jumped on Rubio for this unbelievable gaffe. He's giving the president tons of credit. He's imparting agency and accomplishment to the Obama administration. He is arguing in a Republican debate that Obama deserves credit for all he's done. Yeah, that is a gaffe. Oh, wait a minute. That's not what they're saying the gaffe is. The gaffe is that he was saying that too many times in a row. Repeating canned, memorized lines. To repeat over and over again your one-liners. That was not a good moment for you, was it? He came out last night, George, with a pre-recorded stump speech in his head right. that he couldn't hit pause. People in Marco Roboto costumes showed up <laughs> at his oh event. God. Okay, that was MSNBC's morning show, Morning Joe. They used in that montage... Andrea Mitchell, George Stephanopoulos, Donna Brazil. They used those people to illustrate the point that Rubio had stumbled. And they weren't just quoting outsiders. The assembled Morning Joe Cognoscenti seemed to all agree with Bloomberg's Mark Halperin, who's a frequent guest on Morning Joe. His posture is of observer, a nonpartisan, but he described Rubio's drop this way. There was a, a sense that Marco Rubio might be... Rubio Mentor. Might win. Well, not, might win, win New Hampshire primary or finish a strong second, yeah. clear the field of the other establishment candidates, and if the establishment candidate was going to be the nominee, he could have been the nominee against against Trump and Cruz by South Carolina. He truly could have. He's gone from that now to fighting to stay in this race. 
So those four lines, which might be described as message discipline, but without enough breathing room. So with those four lines, Marco Rubio has gone from front runner to fighting for his life. Ezra Klein and Vox says this is the rare gaffe that will matter because it plays into the candidate's weakness, that Rubio is glib but not deep, that Rubio is not ready. Let me pause for a second and talk a little bit about my career. Yesterday was the Super Bowl. And the great thing about the Super Bowl is that even when it's a crappy Super Bowl, is that it ends two weeks of frantic speculation and chatter about the Super Bowl. In my career, for years, I covered politics, and then for years, I covered sports, and I liked aspects of both. But I would always say one thing I really like about sports is that there is an actual score. The winner is the team with the higher score, except in golf. That's why I don't like golf. Anyway, it didn't matter if a team beat expectations. It didn't matter if the team had momentum. What mattered was the score. In politics, there's so often not a score. But tomorrow, there's going to be a score because elections are the score. So let's talk about these four sentences. Well, one sentence said four times. That will supposedly undo a guy who a week ago was the favorite in the betting markets. You know what? Today, update, Marco Rubio still the favorite in the betting markets to be the Republican nominee. He himself has been on multiple talk shows asked to explain the gaffe. He has the same answer that I'm going to continue to say it because it's an important point in which I believe. Here he is on ABC's This Week. As far as that message, I hope they keep running it. And I'm going to keep saying it because it's true. And here he was this morning on CBS. That's the core of our campaign. Uh, I look forward to continuing to say it. I hope they keep replaying those lines. Wait a minute. He just kind of said the same things twice. If we edit those sentences together, it'll sound like he's repeating himself. I hope they keep running it. And I'm going to keep saying it. I look forward to continuing to say it. I hope they keep replaying those lines. Sometimes that's hailed as message discipline, I guess, when you do it in interviews a day apart. But if you do it in a debate a sentence apart, it's being assailed as message overkill. And while I think the message is off base, I think so. I don't see why it works. I understand that the base, the Republican base, thinks it's on target or else Rubio wouldn't be so keen on getting these words out. And you know what? He did get the words out. I mean, wouldn't most candidates, especially those desperate to get in a word edgewise against the voluble and media-dominating Donald Trump, wouldn't they love to have just one of their sentences known and top of mind for every voter? Quick, what's that thing John Kasich always says? Quick, what's Jeb Bush's theory of the Obama administration? You don't know, but we know what Marco Rubio's is. It's that line about him doing it on purpose. I don't know why it works. I mean, I know why it works. I don't think it should work. Maybe it doesn't work. But now everyone knows he thinks that. And there's also unanimity in the media. I mean, the Washington Post headline, debate performance seems to halt. Washington Post headline, debate performance seems to halt Rubio momentum or more succinctly Politico. Rubio chokes. Let me just point out, by the way, that all these critiques, which basically go that Rubio is more about debate performances than substance. All of these critiques are entirely based on a debate performance as if there's a perfect analogy between a garbled line and unreadiness for office. So I really do not know how this will affect Rubio's chances. I posit that the pundits really don't know either. But there is a bias in the world of political reporting towards dynamism, toward drama. Rubio was up. Who knows if now he's down? And that is why we have elections. And we'll get to see if tomorrow's election is anything like yesterday's football game, because in that game, four fumbles did spell doom. And 
And that's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi talked to her audiologist before editing the gist. Steve Lichtai had a conversation with his life coach before executive producing the show. Andy Bowers made sure to ask his gastroenterologist if being chief content officer of the Panoply Network was right for him. Do not operate heavy machinery while hosting the gist. Do sign up for the gist's newsletter at slate.com slash gist email. The gist, if you are pregnant, nursing, hope to become pregnant, or given to pregnant pauses, the gist might not be right for you. The gist has been known to cause palpitations in some people. The gist side effects include uncontrollable muscle movements, dizziness, trouble swallowing canned talking points, and spontaneous combustion among members of the listening audience with a family history of spontaneous combustion or oily rags. The gist. Tomorrow starts today. Umperu de Peru du Peru, and thanks for listening.